This is Urban Next Exchanges, a podcast by UrbanNext.net, the digital platform that aims to expand architecture to a thin cities. You are listening to an episode of Intertwined Environments, a series hosted by Martha Thorne, Dean of IE School of Architecture and Design. Each session explores the role of designers working on building sustainable cities on different scales. Welcome to the first session of Intertwined Environments, the series in which we discuss the natural, the physical, and the digital realms. More than ever, these three are linked to each other and should enter into all conversations as we talk about constructing environments that respond to current and future challenges. Addressing the social component in this milieu is important too, as we look to goals of sustainable development. I can't think of anyone better than Deborah Burke and David Goodman to discuss this. Deborah is an architect, founder of Deborah Burke Partners, a New York-based practice with more than 30 years of experience making true-to-place projects in the U.S. and around the world. She has been a professor at Yale School of Architecture since 1987 and is currently its dean. Her work emphasizes a commitment to sustainability and the community, becoming one of the most well-rounded professionals in architecture today. David is an architect and researcher who I am lucky to have as a colleague at IE University. He is professor and associate dean of the School of Architecture and Design. His current research deals with innovations in architectural practice and production during times of socioeconomic turbulence. This enables him to have one of the most accurate and thoughtful evaluations of our current situation. I hope you enjoy this conversation. I want to begin by talking about what we're living through right now, which is in a way kind of three overlapping crises, right? And they each kind of work at different rhythms. There's the COVID crisis, which took over our lives uh, kind of overnight and demanded and received kind of totally mobilized response. And then there's the climate crisis, which isn't going away, uh, but we haven't responded to it in the same kind of overwhelming, immediate way. Uh, and then there's uh, a third crisis, which is happening uh, probably most vividly in the U.S., but uh, has led to reckonings around the world, uh, which has to do with centuries-long legacy of structural, racial, colonial injustices. So in the face of these intertwined crises, what, what is the role of the architect in these kinds of crises? I think your analysis, which pulls three very different crises that exist in three dramatically different timeframes. You know, the timeframe of roughly a year-ish climate crisis, let's call it, while some trace it back to the beginning of the Industrial Revolution correctly, awareness of a climate crisis is probably 40 to 50 years old, so half a century long. And then the history behind racial and social injustice goes back thousands of years, right? Or certainly 500 years to the stages of European colonialism as as we recognize it now. And then that followed certainly in the United States by slavery. So one is, yes, they are separate and they exist in different time spans. The other is, however, COVID has pointed out the climate crisis and the racial injustice crisis 
But the racial injustice crisis, in fact, is made all the more evident by the climate crisis and the COVID crisis. Who's dying at higher rates, the poor and disenfranchised, who's most impacted by the climate crisis? You know, you overlay a map as one example of the poorest zip codes in Boston on top of a map of where the water is going to come as the sea rises. And they coincide pretty exactly. That one form of climate change, rising sea levels, impacts the poorest people. And that's a global truth. So these crises, they may be separate by scale, but they're woven together by who is experiencing them the worst. So your question, what is the role of architecture? And I would expand that to include architecture, urban design, and planning. One is to take a step back from what we have historically done, which is we wait until after a crisis, and then we build a memorial. That is not the right response. And there may be communities that feel the need to memorialize those lost to COVID, and I'm deeply respectful of that. But the memorial will not solve the next pandemic. And so we as architects need to be more active in preventing these crises than in merely memorializing them after the fact. So the climate crisis connects to COVID in that massive expansion of habitable space means massive reduction of wilderness for animals and life forms. So we have to control where we develop and build, and architects can play a role in that. We can look at, certainly in the United States, the manifestation, I should say, of the racial, ethnic, and built environment injustices goes back to forms of zoning, housing, mortgage regulations, deed restrictions. Architects play a role in that. You know, we should be active in undoing those things rather than waiting till after the fact to bemoan them. Let's talk about COVID for a second. This is one of those peculiar crises that changes how we do everything. It has changed the mechanism of practice, I'm sure, right, for you, how we organize ourselves in physical space and in time. It's just changed how we do everything. Has it changed what we do? It has, I think, brought dramatic but temporary change that will turn into modest but hopefully meaningful change. So right now, we've lost parking spaces in New York City, yay, because restaurants have been allowed to build outside in order to stay open and survive. I hope that lasts because we don't need all those parking spaces and the festivity and what it does for street life to eat outside is a wonderful thing. We're not quite Paris, but it's been nice and sort of joyous. So the change to the city that comes from COVID will be positive. Will we all still work at our dining room tables and shout at our significant others to please be quiet because I'm on a Zoom call? I hope some of that goes away, one, because it's stressful on relationships and Two, because I think there's much to be gained from the interaction of colleagues in an office and the creative exchange, whether you're an architect or a lawyer or whatever you might be. And I think it's important to add that the working from home model definitely only works in professions that are relatively privileged, right? You can be an architect or a lawyer and work from home, but you can't be a restaurant worker or a retail worker or a nurse and work from home. So I hope the home returns to a little bit more of a sanctuary with the occasional work from home. 
you were editor of this, this great book, The Architecture of the Everyday, and I was listening today to a podcast about The Office. And I'm now watching the series The Office from a third time in its entirety with my children. And there's this part at the end of this podcast where they're talking about what the main goal of the series was. And the director who adapted it for American TV said something like, well, it was really just about, you know, uh, imagining like this parking lot and there's one little dandelion poking up through the pavement in this huge parking lot. And I want to focus on the beauty of this humble thing in the everyday. And when I heard that, I thought, well, that, that's actually, it's kind of perfect because today I'm talking to Deborah Burke and we're going to talk about the everyday. Um, so although it wasn't on the agenda originally, I'd like to, to talk about it a little bit because talk to me, if, if you would, about the beauty of the everyday. You know, that book that Stephen Harris and I co-edited back in the late 90s uh, has become a little bit of a cult item. And I recently went back, actually last fall, to critique it myself. Maybe because I grew up in Queens. I don't know if your readers know New York City well enough to know that Queens is sort of the working class borough of immigrants. It's the borough, it may be the place in the world, it has often been stated where the most languages are spoken of any place in the world. So it's a modest place. And you grew up appreciating the graphics on falafel shops awning next to the Italian butcher down the block from the Chinese tailor, you know, that to me is part of the everyday, these sort of anonymous design creations that shape the experience of a street. And I have long loved that stuff. And I am inspired by it. I think it's why I care so much about context, not that I could authentically imitate that stuff. I couldn't, nor would I, it would be the height of hubris to pretend that you could fake doing that. It's more that you learn from it and understand it as authentic and as context. But what Stephen and I did not talk about enough in the everyday book when we wrote it, you know, more than 20 years ago or edited it and invited people, we didn't talk quite enough about the climate. We didn't talk nearly enough about the city as a place of interaction. We were more talking about buildings outside of the city. We didn't talk about social injustice because when we were working on the book, the everyday was kind of a stand-in for the social, for real people, as opposed to those who could commission architecture. So we were dodging, or maybe not even then aware of, the pressing questions in architecture about who commissions buildings and who are they for, by saying, we're defending the everyday against the monument, and that's enough of a social justice statement. And now I know it's not. So I would today update the everyday. I think the everyday, when it reflects regular people's ordinary lives in the built environment, is still enormously valid and filled with moments of beauty. It's what architects have added on top of that that has often failed. I think what we can do is kind of frame the everyday in a way. Just, you know, and, and actually appreciating the everyday is seeing, having your eyes open. And when we take a photograph of something and we, we, we crop it in just the right way, we frame something, we illuminate it in a way. And I think maybe that is, not being very specific, but to me, maybe that's part of the role of, of the architect. It's to illuminate little moments of the everyday or frame bits of everyday life in a way. 
What you can get from learning from context, one is the point you made, which is to frame moments and find the design in them, right? In those moments and not to assume that just because the world, this world, this everyday world wasn't made by architects that therefore it has no design. And if you frame it correctly, you find the design and you learn from it. You learn the composition, you learn the color, you learn the material. But I think the other things for the architect to recognize, and again, thinking when we worked on this book, we felt architecture was sort of going off the rails in the wrong direction because every building designed by an architect was trying to be, if not a monument, then monumental in some way, right? To have presence beyond its societal role. And I think when you look at communities, whichever communities they might be, and you say, okay, this is the world of the everyday, the architecture of the everyday, in that community somewhere is a library that should not be everyday. That is a special place, right? I think the everyday is one, a lesson about beauty, materiality, and context. And the other is a lesson in learning about what pieces of the built environment need to distinguish themselves from the everyday. And it's not everything. And I'm wondering... Is there a difference really between, let's say you're a concerned citizen, you're a concerned human. Is there a difference between being that engaged, concerned citizen and being an engaged professional? Are they the Uh, same thing? Is it just like our way, is an architect's way of being a good citizen or an active citizen, you know, bringing to bear his or her skills? Is it, or is there any kind of other professional obligation that kind of pushes up against it? That's a complicated question. Let's tackle the first part of that question first, where you use your skills and where you find your fulfillment. So I used for decades, particularly for young people in my office and for students, you know, if there were needs in your community that you could address, how would you address them? One model is, you know, you go to an after school program and you tutor kids in reading whose parents don't have the time to do that or whose native language isn't English or who can't help them. And you are contributing to your community in that way. With those same three hours a week, could you be on your local planning board as a concerned citizen, but using your expertise very explicitly and in a directed way. I think each person, each architect, each designer has to answer that question for themselves. Where are they putting their skills and where are they going to find the most fulfillment? The second part of the question you implied is what happens when these two things come crashing up against each other when you're a professional? So you care about uh, equal access to housing, but you've been hired to design a building that only the very rich can afford to live in. What do you do there? You say, great, I am so happy to do this job. I'm going to make a beautiful building because everybody, no matter what their income level, gets to walk past it. And I want my city to look good? Uh, Do you say, yes, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to make sure that the developer client makes the greenest building they can do beyond what local regulations require? Do I say, yes, I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a ton of money from this developer guy and I'm going to donate it in my office to do pro bono practices. In other words, what are the opportunities that the profession requires? And then what do you do when either that clashes with your ethics or how do you actually exploit those opportunities to fulfill your ethics? You know, this is one of the tricky things that I find as an educator to explain to at at the same time fuel and support the idealism of our students 
while also helping them be realistic about what it takes to make a living in this field is not so easy. And it's tricky, but not impossible to get them excited about both notions, right? So they kind of think entrepreneurially about your work and, and understand you've got to, you know, if you want to start a business and employ people and, and, and create jobs, that's a great thing. And at the same time, sometimes you will have these moments of conflict. I think I'm sure very few professions are without <laughs> such conflict, right? I mean, we're not unique in that, in that sense. We are not unique in that sense at all. And I think what's important for students and young architects to recognize as part of this is the built environment has an enormous impact on everybody's life. I mean, we all are in buildings. Many of us are in cities. We all connect with built infrastructure in some way, our water, our sewers, our roads, our transportation. And all that stuff costs money. And buildings are really expensive and infrastructure is really expensive. And money is controlled in most Western democracies through complex systems. But architects, I think, need to recognize that they have to deal with money and that money in the world that we're in, in the built environment world, it takes a lot of money. And that leads to potential conflicts and difficulties, but it also makes what we do possible. I have to say there was a point in my education that I think I had some professors who were completely oppositional, right? Who had this position where it is your job is to scream at the top of your lungs, you know, stop. <laughs> and others who were perfectly content to surf along it and, and saw no great problem. And both of those positions are kind of problematic. You know, one of them, the first is very easy to do if you're in a situation of privilege where you can afford to yell stop at the top of your lungs. Many of our students don't have that privilege. And the second, you know, can lead to kind of a lack of reflection, you know, and, and a gradual, not an immediate kind of abandonment of one's ideals. But a potential models. erosion of one's ideals, right? As yeah. a compromise and a compromise and then the next compromise, you know. How you've brought social convictions to bear on the way you run your practice. Our values here in the office, they're genuine and they're deeply held. So they're not a marketing strategy. They are who we are, but we don't pretend to be perfect. So part of stating one's goals publicly and working with others to promote these values is to continue to hold yourself accountable as you go on making architecture. Most architects, as you mentioned earlier, you don't totally get to pick your clients. Some very privileged, enormously famous architects maybe get to pick their clients. But I do think you can be wise and caring in which projects you decide to do because doing a project, designing a building consumes perhaps the only resource that all humans share, which is time. We all have a limited amount of time. When you choose to work on something, you're committing your time to it and you want it therefore to reinforce your values. So for us, in my practice, we work with a lot of mission-driven organizations, not-for-profits, foundations, universities, stuff like that, who share our values. And so this idea of continually testing and holding ourselves accountable in the context of doing this work is to work with our clients to meet their goals and our goals. And I think this commitment doesn't affect how we design except to improve it. I've had this theory, which I actually wrote a paper trying to test it, and I, I, I couldn't get <laughs> enough uh, quantitative support for the idea. But I have this theory that actually uh, architects come to resemble the people or the agencies they work for. And I mean, when I mean resemble, I mean like even to the point of like how you organize your firm, but also how you dress and how you talk. 
And I used to work at a firm where there were different divisions. There was a not-for-profit division who dressed a certain way, talked a certain way. And there was the, the people who worked with the developers and they dressed a different way and talked a different way. And when we choose our clients or we are chosen by clients, it, it isn't kind of a mapping of oneself in a way. And I wonder how have, you know, let's say it's not even necessarily a conscious thing, right? If one is moving in certain social circles, we find people who think alike, who have similar maybe ambitions. And, and if we are committed to certain things, well, we probably find clients who are interested in those similar things. Do you, do you observe this kind of thing in, in practice? In our practice, I guess because I see it as a very positive thing in our practice, it's all good, right? We work with these people. We learn from these people. We had been working on this project in New York called the Women's Building, which was going to be an adaptive reuse project of what had been a women's prison, turning it into a center for not-for-profits, foundations, and NGOs devoted to the betterment of life for women and girls around the world. Great, fabulous, amazing idea. And taking a women's prison to turn it into that was even more profound, right? The project, unfortunately, is not going ahead, but it got it got all the way through, uh, halfway through construction documents before external forces forced it to be canceled. What did I learn in that process? We as a firm do listen to our clients, but among the people we spoke to uh, in the design process were women who had been incarcerated in this building. And we listened a lot. We got way outside of our traditional territory of experiences we had known. And we had to respect their experiences and the way they described them and what the physical manifestation of that building meant to their experience in order to know how to go about our design. So here's an example. We had decided, although we were opening up most of the building for event spaces, open offices, and things like that, that we should save one cell. And we thought the women might say to us, no, 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 destroy all the cells. It was so horrible. And instead, what they said was, please save enough cells on both sides of the hallway so that everybody can know what it feels like to walk down a narrow hall where the doors have barred windows and skinny little slots that a meal tray could slide through and almost no light coming in because of the bars on the exterior windows. That hallway experience was one of the most excruciating aspects of being imprisoned, and we want people to feel that. So we learned a lot from listening. And I would say that's what we're bringing forward, whoever the client might be. I don't know if we can be good at our jobs if we don't have a deeper understanding of the world outside of our little bubble. And we're so wrapped into it that I do think long-term, we need to get out a little bit and see people. Uh, and you know, this is one of the wonderful things about a city like New York. Not everyone lives in a city like this where you can, in normal times, meet people who are unlike you. But I do think it's a really important part of being good at this job is to be able to empathize with the way other people are. I think that's right. I think it's exposure to how other people exist in the world makes you a better architect. And I think that's as true at the corner store or the deli or the green market or on the subway as it is in the museum and the concert hall and the Broadway theater. You know, you want to see other people living their lives because then you are learning how to be a better architect. I would like to thank Deborah and David for sharing their knowledge and giving us the tools to navigate through these uncertain times. They are professionals committed to understanding the broader context and seeking to make a positive impact.
If you'd like to learn more about the topics discussed in this conversation, I recommend you keep an eye on the Urban Next platform and also the website of IE Center for Sustainable Cities. This space was produced by I School of Architecture and Design, its Center for Sustainable Cities and UrbanNext.net. Check out the description for the links related to the discussion from this session. If you like the episode, follow us on your preferred podcast platform and share it with your network. The Urban Next Exchanges series is created by Ricardo de Besa and myself, Marta Bouges. Feel free to contact us via email at inputbox at urbannext.net if you want to comment on the podcast or share your work with us. Thank you for listening.